Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to think after 20 years I should know how to breathe, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I'm going to talk about. Um, fortunately, I don't do uh, really frequent talks, so there's a lot of space between them that gives me the opportunity to think about it. And, uh, and this time it took about two months to come up with a topic. So, <laughs> And then it took about two months thinking about the topic to decide what I was going to say. And usually when I get here, I never say what I think about anyway, so it's a rather dynamic process. But <clears throat> I'd like to give you a title anyway. Um, so the title for the talk is The Kama Vipaka of Spiritual Practice. But before I start, I was sitting in the bathtub doing my morning reading, which is where I do most of my spiritual reading. It's uh, like going to the womb. It's very warm and comfortable. Um, and I started a new book um, by uh, a monk named uh, Ajahn Brahm. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a, a member of the Thai uh, forest tradition, and uh, his teacher was Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho. And he's actually centered in Australia. And he tends to write rather unusual books. The first one he wrote was entitled, uh, Who Ordered the Truckload of Dung?, <laughs> and this one is called Don't Worry, Be Grumpy. <laughs> but he sort of touched on 
a lot of the stuff that I was thinking about, and these are very short stories, and I really recommend them because they're easy reading, uh, they all have an interesting point, and uh, he has a good sense of humor. This is called The Container and the Contents. There were riots in the streets some years ago after a guard at Guantanamo Bay was accused of taking a holy book and flushing it down the toilet. The next day, I took a call from a local journalist who told me he was writing an article about the outrage by asking leaders of all the major religions in Australia the same question he was about to ask me. What would you do, Ajahn Brahm, if someone took a Buddhist holy book and flushed it down your toilet? Without hesitation, I answered, Sir, if someone took a Buddhist holy book and flushed it down my toilet, the first thing I would do is call a plumber. <laughs> when the journalist finished laughing, he confided that that was the first sensible answer he'd received. <laughs> then I went further. I explained that someone may blow up many statues of the Buddha, burn down Buddhist temples, or kill Buddhist monks and nuns. They may destroy all of this, but I will never allow them to destroy Buddhism. You may flush a holy book down the toilet, <clears throat> but I will never let you flush forgiveness, peace, and compassion down the toilet. The book is not the religion, nor is the statue, the building, or the priest. These are only containers. What does the book teach us? What does the statue represent? What qualities are the priests supposed to embody? These are the contents. When we recognize the difference between the container and the contents, then we will preserve the contents even when the container is being destroyed. We can print more books, build more temples and statues, and even train more monks and nuns. But when we lose our love and respect for others and ourselves, and replace it with violence, then the whole religion has gone down the toilet. So, as I said, I think he's a good writer, and I think he's entertaining, so try him. <clears throat> now, my talk title was rather, I guess, obscure if you're not familiar with Pali. Um, um, and if you haven't really thought a lot about spiritual practice. Um, we're going to talk a bit about it today. My approach is generally to dialogue, so I hope everybody has something to say and is willing to share it. And I'm going to ask some questions that I hope you respond to, um, either by raising your hand for some of the questions or by actually giving me responses. So this is not so much a teaching as it is a conversation um, and a dialogue. So please be engaged. So it's one of my forms of engaged Buddhism. Um, as I said, the title is Kama Vipaka of Spiritual Practice. Kama is the Pali version of the word karma. So the first question is, does anyone here know what karma is? Is anyone brave enough to take a chance at action? Great. That's, it's really important because the view we typically hold in our culture of karma is a whole lot more than action. So, to give you a formal definition, karma is a Pali word literally meaning action. The Buddha defined it as volition. Any deliberate act, either skillful 
wholesome or unskillful or unwholesome. So what's that mean? means that we're engaged in karma every instant of our lives. Every breath we draw, every thought that arises, every movement of our body or hands is karma, action. Second word, vipaka. Anyone want to take a stab at what vipaka means? Again, Pali. Vipaka is a Pali word literally meaning ripening. The Buddha defined it as the results of karma. So, in our view, typically, um, we see karma as being both the action and the ripening of the action. But in reality, they're two separate things. Both of them make up what is a result of our activities on the planet. We go around performing actions and resulting in ripenings of those actions. So think about that. Every time you do something, every time you draw a breath, every time you have a thought, every time you make a movement, it's producing an action that will ripen which in turn will probably lead to another action. And when the Buddha talked about karma and vipaka, he was pointing out that this is the way we interact, not only within ourselves, but with the entire world around us and within the entire universe, within all of the universes. Every single action has an impact on our world, our solar system, our universe, and all the universes. Okay, beginning, we have, we have this thing of, of cause and effect. And then we have something called spiritual practice. Okay, how many people here have a spiritual practice? How many people here have what they see as a daily spiritual practice. Okay. Who would like to take a shot at defining the word practice? <laughs> Anybody? I'll be bored. Putting into application the Dharma that, that your practice puts forth. Okay. And the daily <laughs> Okay. Yeah, one of the difficulties I think we have in our culture is that we tend to live very sort of segmented lives. <laughs> now, um, one of the problems is the word practice typically gets interpreted as meaning sort of like preparation. You know, if you're going, if you're going to be a, a great tennis player, you've got to go out and do a lot of practice. You know, and that's how it gets used most frequently, I think. But along the lines that you're saying, I have a, a definition here. The actual application or use of an idea, belief, or method as opposed to theories about such application or use. Could you read that again? Please. The actual application or use of an idea, belief, or method 
as opposed to theories about such application or use. So we talk about having a medical practice or a legal practice, and certainly when we're talking about a medical practice, we hope that the person who's practicing it isn't really getting ready to do it. We really hope they have some skill at it, otherwise we probably are going to have a major problem. And that's the term that I would like, or the way I would like to represent practice for our perspective today. So fortunately, the Buddha was a really nice guy, and he spent a lot of time talking about practice. In fact, he rarely talked about anything else. Part of our problem is we tend to take things in little pieces. So when we look at what the Buddha taught, we may take a piece of it and look at it and spend a lot of time thinking about it and lose the context under which the Buddha was presenting it. And that is as a whole perspective of his practice. So if we look at something like the Satipatthana Sutra, it's an impressive, impressive uh, talk that he gave. But you can lose the context of how that applies to all of our lives because it's, it's actually a very intense, intense presentation. But the Buddha was trying to give guidance to people about what they should do with their lives. And the first thing he did was he established a foundation for why we should be doing a practice. So, why? What's the purpose of having a, a spiritual practice? For one thing, to gain some mastery over your mind so you're being learned by it. Okay. Others? Yeah? I think of it as getting myself in alignment. Okay. Don't ask me with what. <laughs> with what? <laughs> As a sort of a quick definition, I put together a little purpose here. And, you know, I, I tend to be very mental, which is probably one of my greatest issues in practice. But uh, um, I said to help us exercise more authority over those aspects of our lives that are less physical. So, what was the Buddha's reason for practice? To be free. Of? Suffering. Okay. And how is that presented by the Buddha? What was it, how did he represent that? What was the talk he gave and how did he define that? Four noble truths. Okay, which are? What's the first truth? What's the second truth? Which is? Third? And fourth? Great. So now we have what the Buddha said was the reason for having a spiritual practice. So if we're in alignment with that, then the reason that we engage in a practice is because we recognize in our lives that there's a certain amount of dissatisfaction which arises and that we had someone who gave us enough guidance as to point out ways that we could actually find our way out of that. And the way out of that is the Eightfold Path. Big question. What are the eight 
components of the Eightfold Path. I don't want you to say them. I just want to know how many people actually spend their life thinking about the eight components and know them. It's spiritual practice. The Eightfold Path is the practice. So if you basically look at what the Buddha defined as the Eightfold Path, you pretty much get laid out for you how to have a spiritual practice. Again, the difficulty for us is that it's really complicated. I mean, it's eight things we have to think about and somehow we have to integrate into our lives. And, I mean, that really seems like, I mean, when I first looked at it, I spent some time memorizing it. And I thought that was sort of cool because, you know, I could recite it back. I now know what it is. And then I realized that, well, okay, right view. Well, what is right view? I mean, and not only what is it, but how do I apply it? I mean, what's right? What's view? or right intention, or right speech, or right action, or right livelihood, or right effort, or right <clears throat> mindfulness, or right concentration. I mean, each of these things in themselves seem like, you know, I could spend months and years just sort of looking at them. How am I going to somehow integrate those into my life and make that my practice? Well, it's taken me years and years and years, and I'm not sure I still have an answer, but at least I have uh, some things that I can point at that might be useful. One of them is that the Buddha organized the Eightfold Path into three components. So it seems that maybe three might be easier to deal with than eight. It would be nice if he could organize them into one, which he did with the spiritual practice, but again, that's a little more difficult to deal with. So let's look at the three components. Anybody know what the first component was? It's made it's the first two members of the Eightfold Path, which is right view and right intention. Anybody? Wisdom. See, we have a scholar here too. <laughs> wisdom. What's wisdom? Wisdom is a certain knowing and awareness. So Right view and right intention must have something to do with a certain level of awareness in our lives. So if it's a path, it means it's something that we have to sort of sustain or maintain throughout our lives. So we have to maintain, and we can sort of take the right and put it in front of it. We sort of have to maintain right wisdom, although it's not really necessary because we assume that wisdom is right. But it does vary depending on whose perspective you take. The Pali word for wisdom is pana. So it's really the foundation for the Eightfold Path, which is the foundation for spiritual practice. So how is wisdom the foundation for spiritual practice? Be bold. It's a sort of guidance. It informs... 
You can't go anyplace if you don't know where you're going. So, that's the foundation. Now, the other thing about the Eightfold Path is it isn't sort of a step-by-step -step process, and yet it is. You can't really get on the pathway without having some wisdom. You have to have at least a basic <coughs> sense of where you're going. The other components of the Eightfold Path will come back and support wisdom as they develop, as you evolve them. Or you may have some components of those already integrated into your life, and those will serve as a foundation as well. So it's not like we're going to go through it, do step one, do step two, do step three, which is sort of you know, our way of approaching things generally in our culture. We're going to try to progress along all of them, but we're going to recognize that at least at the starting point, some have to be emphasized more than others. So in the beginning, recognizing right view and not only right view, but intention, which means commitment to a view, become really critical because you can't effectively put the rest of them in place unless you at least have view and intention. Next three, right speech, right action, right livelihood. How did the Buddha group those? We have wisdom, what's next? Next. Hmm? Virtue. Virtue. So, we have wisdom that we're going to follow a path. Now we're going to go out into the world and we're going to begin to try to do things in a way that appears to be, from our wisdom, the right direction to move in. Those include right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Okay, so now we have wisdom and I'm going to call it ethical conduct for right now. That's because it's easier to remember because it's written down in front of me. <laughs> right speech. What we're talking about not only is what we say to others, but how we say it and what we mean by it, the intention behind it. It also means that dialogue that we maintain with ourselves that nobody else hears. I was looking at a, uh, I've been reading some books on pranayama recently. Is everyone familiar with what pranayama is? Working with the breath. It's a practice, Hindu practice primarily, but uh, Buddhism engages in, there's actually, uh, there are actually Buddhist forms of pranayama as well. Um, one of the things that it mentioned was we tend to view our brain-body relationship as being sort of one-directional. The brain tells the tongue to move, and the tongue moves. We don't recognize that the tongue moves and the brain reacts. It's a two-directional street. Everything that's going in our body is a two-directional street all the time. So it's not only what we say, but what we think and how it affects us. Anger, tight tongue, Rigidity, all those things are having an impact on our brain as well as our brain having an impact on them. So when we talk about right speech, we're talking about not only the concept of the tongue moving in response to the brain, but the, but the brain moving in response to the tongue, frequently to others, but 
Right livelihood means doing things that don't necessarily produce a lot of discomfort in our lives professionally. And the Buddha was pretty specific about it. He said, you don't really want to go out and sell guns. Uh, you don't really want to go out and, uh, and slaughter animals. Um, and again, that was his perspective. Those are harmful to you, and obviously they can be harmful to others, but they're harmful to you. And I think we lose track of the perspective that the Eightfold Path is defined for us. It's what we're going to do. It's not about the world. It's about what we're going to do in the world. It's our path, not the world's path. Right action, I think, is a little more difficult. It includes a lot of things that uh, we normally think about, like we don't want to go out and steal, and uh, we don't want to go out and kill, and we don't want to go out and overindulge. And we'll talk about those in a couple of minutes. Uh, those come out as uh, what are called the precepts. So we now have a view and intention, which is wisdom, and we ha now have a way of approaching the world, which is ethical conduct. And we have three components of the Eightfold Path to still look at. So, last three. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. How did the Buddha group those? I'll give you a hint. He said those were samadhi, which is the last one, concentration. So, if wisdom deals with setting the direction and ethical conduct deals with how we look at the world, what does concentration deal with? How we look at ourselves. Who and what we are. Right effort says we need to cultivate positive states of mind. We need to effectively evolve ourselves away from evil and unwholesome states into positive, productive states. It's not about action in the world. It's about setting the intention of our mind so that we move in the direction we choose. Mindfulness. We have to be aware of everything that's going on. Not only everything that's going on around us, but everything that's going on within us. And it's not only what our brains are doing. It's what our bodies are doing. Because of that two-way relationship between body and brain. And finally, concentration, which is really sort of the pinnacle of this, which is a meditative process or a concentrating process where we actually learn the discipline of focusing our minds. So, we have eight steps that are now three steps. Wisdom, direction, ethical conduct, facing the world, and concentration, managing ourselves. <clears throat> which sounds a little bit easier than the other eight, which are a lot more to remember. Does anyone have anything they'd like to contribute?
Oh, come on. Well, I like precision over vagueness, so I'll take the eight over the three. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually quite complete because you're looking at the you're looking at the pathway, you're looking at the world, and you're looking at yourself, yeah. and obviously yourself within the world. Yeah. So it's it's very complete. Oh, I'm glad you said these weren't eight steps. You took one in each succession because I have felt that a focus on the last three has led to the previous. I think that's true. I think that if you don't have a grounding in wisdom, you're not going to get anywhere to the last three, though. No, that's true. So, you know, and, and really, you're not even going to begin to look at the last three, at least from a Buddhist perspective, mm -hmm. until you, you find that, that view and intention. Now, what happens is as you begin to practice as you begin to really develop that mindfulness and that concentration and that effort, it has a profound impact on the wisdom. Yeah, so it becomes a very circular process, but it is linear and circular at the same time. It's a very difficult thing for people to sort of get because, you know, if, if we have to assemble something, we look at it directions that put us in the position of doing one thing at a time. And this is not a one-thing-at-a-time process, even though you have to emphasize different aspects of it at different times. Mm -hmm. If you aren't grounded in wisdom, then the focus should be on wisdom, not on concentration. If you're not grounded in ethical conduct, then don't be heavily focused on concentration because you're going to find it very <laughs> difficult and frustrating. So find a place to work. Look at what's going on with you, which is wisdom, and select the appropriate activities associated with that view. And seek guidance if you're having difficulty. You know, look for a good friend. That's the best thing in the world. That's what the Buddha said we should seek out. He didn't advise us to seek out teachers. Seek out good friends. Seek out good friends and what the feedback? Reflection. Uh-huh. Yeah, feedback. Talk about what's going on with you and ask them for their perspective. Mm -hmm. If they're good friends, what you're going to get back is an honest perspective. You have to recognize that we're all struggling along the pathway, so you know you 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 include that in what's happening in the discussions. But who else is there to rely on? You know, you're not going to get out of a book. They're not dynamic enough. Oh, sorry. Um, 
I was curious if you could elaborate a little more on my speech. Um, I've been dealing with something where I will draft something via email, because that's the only connection with this person. And I'm finding that um, I'm so glad I don't send it, because I, I go back into the draft like three hours later, and I notice that my speech is not reflecting my true intention. Mm -hmm. And I notice that there's some egos getting in the way. And so it's been very difficult to communicate the essence of what, what I really feel. And so I was just curious, how does one quiet down or at least get in touch with what the intent is and, and kind of quiet down the ego so that one is getting what they need to communicate and, and one is getting what they kind of want versus compromising so much to where you feel so frustrated that you don't even want to continue the conversation. Well, I think you, you basically brought up an entire talk. Um, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. One is mindfulness. Now, when you write something, it's always wise to give yourself an opportunity to reflect before, especially if you have the potential for holding it long enough before you send it. Secondly, recognize that no matter what you say, you can't control how it's going to be interpreted. And most likely, your intent is never going to be fully recognized. That's the nature of being human. We're separate. And when we put things out into the world, they're subject to the other person's experiences in interpreting what's being said. You can't do anything about that. You can say things in a way that aren't harmful. <clears throat> you can say things in a way that represent what you feel to the best of your ability. And you can say things without anger. You can say things without fear. And sometimes it's best just not to say them. It's the best advice I have. Thank you. But mindfulness is really the key. <clears throat> because it takes all of those things that make it a selfish perspective away. Or maybe show it to your friend and say, how do you read this? <laughs> <laughs> if it's a good friend. Yeah. If it's your friend, yeah. <clears throat> Anyone else? <clears throat> One of the things that uh, the Buddha put out into the... Um, Lay community were the precepts. Um, is everyone familiar with the precepts? Raise your hand if you're not familiar with them. Okay. Who's a precept knower here who would like to tell everybody what the precepts are? All right. These are not thou shall not. These are not thou shall not. These are, let's call them recommendations. And so they're presented in all sorts of different forms. Uh, I happen to stumble across some that I like the form, so I use these. The first is to abstain from taking the lives of living beings. Don't kill things. 
Benjamin, can, can, what are the sources of the precepts? Are, are, they, are they connected with one of the, the paths in the Eightfold Path or something Yeah, if you remember, I, I mentioned when, when I said right action, they included things like not killing, not stealing, not overindulgence. So, so the precepts are just kind of further elaboration of right action? It's really, it's really sort of the, the outlooking aspects into the world, how we should effectively behave in the world. And the Buddha was sort of putting this out for lay people so they had some guidelines as to how they should interact with other people. The, the way monks interacted with the world is defined in the Vinaya. And believe me, you don't want to get involved in the Vinaya. It's very long and very complicated and a lot of rules. Several hundred, I believe. Correct? I think it was 226 or something. So this is, you know, sort of a simplified version of the Eightfold Path ethical conduct. The non-harm list. Yep, it's really the right action list. Abstain from taking that which is not given. Abstain from sexual misconduct. Abstain, abstain from telling falsehoods. And finally, to abstain from intoxicants, which are the occasion for carelessness. And I like that. That's one of the best definitions I've heard of it. <laughs> you know, because uh, it, it involves this, it doesn't, it, it's not about whether it distorts you, it's whether it makes you careless, which is a distortion, but it's a different way of saying it. So, again, these uh, we usually you know, this is sort of like one of the things we get presented with, and from the Buddhist perspective, sort of like the Ten Commandments in Christianity. Except the Buddha never really said these are things you must do. He said these are guidelines for how to improve your spiritual practice. Okay, anybody want to talk about any particular precept? What is, can you elaborate about abstaining from sexual misconduct? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, it really comes down to very simple doing harm to someone else or harm to yourself. You know, and I don't think it really goes beyond that. That's misconduct. So, I mean, there are certainly a, a large number of ways one can do that. But let's say that it's not only just you know the physical act of sex, it's also the sexual interactions between people where we tend to do a lot more harm. You know, getting angry with people because they are who they are when we're involved in an intimate relationship. People not responding the way we want, so we punish them. Punishing ourselves because uh, we feel guilt. Well, you know, they're, it, they're just massive numbers of variations of that that you know you really it's a and again it's another whole talk <laughs> so does everybody know who Ram Dass is yeah. or most of you know who Ram Dass is um, he did an album called Ram Dass a musical album a long time ago and it was a mix of chants, and uh, he incorporated into it some readings. 
And he did one which comes from the songs of Kabir that I particularly liked. And it sort of addresses some of the things that we need to think about in our spiritual practice. It says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still threw it over threw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pull back my sexual longings, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I am greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving my greed, and now I am proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. Kabir says, listen, my friend, there are very few that find the path. When I was thinking about what I wanted to say, the point I wanted to make, I was really um, involved in the meditational aspect of my practice. So a lot of it related to how one evolves the meditational practice. So for the people here, how many of you have meditation as part of your practice? How many of you enjoy the meditational aspect of your practice? <laughs> Is it sort of sometimes? You don't feel like meditating on Sunday. Some days it's great. So. How do you prepare for your meditational practice? Well, I have sort of my own personal ritual and setting up my space and lighting some candles on an altar I have and sitting in a certain way and, and setting off a timer so that I will have uh, 30 minutes. How long does that take? 30, uh, to prepare, <coughs> maybe five minutes. Okay. Anyone else? Um, I do mine in the morning before um, I do anything else. So I just wake up and um, go to the bathroom first. That's something I do. I like to do it in the dark so there's no light, like you know, the natural light so before the sun rises. And I always do, um, I'll do like 15 minutes of yoga first, kind of get into my breathing just to kind of relax my body. And then um, I just, I do 15 minutes. So I do 15 minutes of yoga and 15 minutes of meditation. Okay. So, I have a special space that I do it in. It's like a space that's always there. Okay. <clears throat> Why do you meditate? Um, I was actually thinking about that question when you were asking. <clears throat> and I was thinking about it. Um, like, why do most things, I think, for the same reason. It's um, because I feel, it, like, it feels right. Like, when I, when I first tried it, I go, this is so boring. The first time I did it, I did it, like, when I was um, 15 or something. It was, my mind wasn't in a place to accept it. And then I tried it multiple times over the years. And then finally, at some point, when I was, I did it, I went to this retreat, and I did it like daily in an ashram, 
mm -hmm. once a day and it kind of like clicked with me and I realized I do it because um, I feel so much better when I do it. Like I feel so much better in my mind and in my heart and I have so much more clarity and just like the way I respond to the world is much, it's, I prefer how I am when I do it as when I don't do it. I notice, I notice a significant difference in like so many aspects of how I relate to the world. Like, and like if I'm compassionate, if I'm frustrated with myself with things, if I just let things go, like stress, um, and I just feel, I don't know, I just feel so much clarity. I think that's the easiest thing I just notice. Everything is just kind of clear and calm. So you think it might affect <coughs> your <coughs> wisdom and ethical conduct? Absolutely, absolutely does. But uh, I noticed, like, I had when I was having significant problems with, with the boss or some situation, and I kind of I, I meditate a little bit in intention. So I do my intention on yoga, and then um, when I meditate, I. My intention is already been kind of set beforehand, so it's kind of in the background of my mind, I guess, somewhere. But um, yeah, and, I've, and when I'm having difficulty something, I kind of think about that before I meditate, and it usually has helped me to kind of face things that I was having trouble facing. Okay. Real with people. Anyone else? Yeah, we talked about. Um, the Eightfold Path, and the eighth step in the Eightfold Path was right concentration. And the Buddha, when he talked about right concentration, really talked about meditation. So he equated meditation with concentration. So why would he do that? What does concentration have to do with this? With meditation? Yeah. Well, I believe meditation... At least for me, it gives me the opportunity to see how my how thoughts come and go, and how, how my mind works. I, I don't know. I, I, to some degree, it might be a tool to help me focus more, but at least it lets, lets me witness how my mind, how, how ideas come and go in my mind, in a way that I'm usually unconscious of. Right. The, the the Buddha sort of equated our lives to like uh, a pond with a very disrupted surface, lots of ripples all over the place. And he equated meditation as basically reducing those ripples until you have a smooth, clear surface. A focused mind, which isn't really being traumatized by all of the continuous activity that goes on about us, which by the result, which by the way, is what I talked about in the beginning is part of the title. It's the effects of karma. That activity, that action that's going on all the time. So meditation really comes down to <clears throat> a practice of stillness. But it's not only just mental stillness, it's physical stillness. Even in the motion of walking meditation, it's physical stillness. One of the things I've done with my practice recently is I've expanded the amount of time that I focus on breath. 
the one component that is always active in our body that we are quite aware of is breath. And the Buddha said, take a look at it. And he didn't just tell us to take a look at it because it serves as a nice anchor for practice. He said, take a look at it because it's a wonderful teaching tool about how we can attain stillness in motion. If you understand your breath, you'll understand how you can be still even though you're moving. <coughs> Effectively not suffering the consequences of karma. Isn't that what an anchor is? Not necessarily. An anchor is a point that pulls us, we can pull back to. When I started doing deep breathing, what I noticed was if I took a really deep breath, my entire body got tense. It took me uh, quite a bit of practice to reach the point where I could take a deep breath and not tense my body. Just as an example. Breath is a, a, a pretty straightforward one to look at because it's something that we have with us all the time. But if you look at right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, you see that all of these things are continually producing ripples in our lives. And the reason the Buddha laid out these things was because he said, take a look at this because you're not going to be able to effectively concentrate until you've smoothed out the sources of the ripples. If you live a disrupted life, you'll have a disrupted practice. You'll find meditation is very difficult to do. So when you get down to the Kama Vipaka, the spiritual practice, you're taking a look at all the things that need to be done on a moment-by-moment -moment basis that still produce stillness in your mental states. And if you do those things, the vipaka, the outcome of all of that karma will make the meditation happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? If the foundation is put in place, the meditation is a logical extension of it. If you try to do the meditation without building the foundation, it won't stand. And it's not like the Buddha was saying, wow, you have to go off and become a monk said, you just have to make sure that you work at keeping everything clean. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood. You know, we always have a choice of how we do things. We can do an action towards another with anger or with compassion, love. It's our choice. If you do it one way, it'll produce ripples all over the place. If you do it another way, it will make the pathway work for you. Think about it. You get to decide the outcome of your practice by what you do every moment of your life. You lay the foundation. 
And when you begin to recognize that meditation is really just a component of all of that activity that will come into alignment when that activity is done properly, it changes the entire view. Thank you.
I, my name is Mike Gorman. I'll put out a, a little uh, a kind of note to, to the mailing list. Great. And just uh, the reminder for Donna, the uh, Hollywood Forgiving, there's a bowl out, and also our host will walk around the bowl, and the suggested donation is $10, seven to $10. And there are actually two hosts today. Two hosts, huh? <laughs> um, and uh, the, the donations go to pay for this room and for our work with Larkin Street and um, the newsletter that we put out. For, um, so give, give what you can. Um, as Jerry already mentioned, next week is Dave Rico and the, uh, I'll just read his blurb. Dave Rico, uh, PhD, MFT is a psychologist, teacher, and writer in Santa Barbara and San Francisco who emphasizes Jungian, transpersonal, and spiritual perspectives in his work. He's the author of How to Be an Adult in Relationships. For more information, www.davebreaker.com. And shall we close with a dedication? I want to just include in the, in the location that uh, some of you know Stephen Levine uh, died on Sunday. Mm -hmm. So he and his wife Andrea have been an incredible ally to our community, mm -hmm. and especially during the AIDS crisis. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the, in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.